This podcast was recorded at Grace Point Church of Orville. For more information, visit us online at orogracepoint.com. For the next few minutes on this Good Friday afternoon, I would like to call your attention to the end of John's Gospel, chapter number 19, where John records the last few minutes of Jesus' time on the cross. Beginning in verse number 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Jesus' last words, according to John, were these. It is finished. Now my first thought was, well, what was finished? His life? His mission? Redemption? What exactly was it that he finished? There on the cross. And in order to unpack that, the first thing to note is that the underlying Greek verb here translated in this phrase, it is finished, has a little bit broader semantic range than simply to be done. So if we're not careful, that can be the connotation. When we hear it's finished, This sounds a lot like the end. But really, it would be a mistake to understand or think that when Jesus says it is finished, that he is suggesting that something has come to an end, that it's over, that it's done. So rather than understanding Jesus' declaration that it is finished as signaling the end of something, What I'd like for us to consider for a few minutes is the possibility that really he's saying something is now complete. Something has reached a state of fulfillment. Now, of course, this is only the first step because now I've replaced the question, well, what's finished with what is complete? What has been fulfilled? What has reached some goal? And in order to answer this question, we're going to need to back up a little bit. All the way to the beginning of John's Gospel. You see, it's only in John's account of the crucifixion that we hear Jesus declare that it is finished. That it is complete. So in order to really understand what it is that has been finished, that has been brought to completion, we have to go back to the beginning of the Gospel and see what got started. What is it that was inaugurated that would need to be completed? As you'll recall, John begins his Gospel like this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. 
And the life was the light of humanity. The light shines on in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. Then in verse 14, John makes this startling declaration. And the Word became flesh, dwelt, tabernacled among us. And we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So in light of the opening of John's Gospel, here is my proposal for your consideration today. Could it be that it wasn't until Good Friday that the Word made flesh was finally complete? Could it be that it wasn't until Good Friday that the glory of the tabernacling of God among us was fully made visible, that the fullness of grace and truth was truly seen? I know it must sound like a strange sort of glory for me to say that only on the cross is the glory fully rendered visible. This twist on glory reminds me of that moment in the delightful 1970s rock opera by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, Jesus Christ Superstar. When Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, Simon the Zealot, this great crowd, urge Jesus to mount a proper revolution. There must be over 50,000, Simon says, who would do whatever you ask. Just add in a touch of hate at Rome and you will rise to greater power. It is quite the scene. The dancing, wildly ecstatic crowd singing, you'll get the power and the glory, Lord, forever and ever and ever. But then, as their song comes to an end, Jesus turns and sings those powerfully haunting lines. Neither you, Simon, nor the 50,000, nor the Romans, nor the Jews, nor Judas, nor the twelve, nor the priests, nor the scribes, nor doom Jerusalem itself. Understand what power is. Understand what glory is. Understand at all. You see, in this present age, when the gospel has been so thoroughly commercialized and nationalized and capitalized, it seems to me that most Christians want to jump from Sunday to Sunday so quick to race ahead of the crowd shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right on to the empty tomb and a celebration of resurrection power. But today on Good Friday, we have stopped the procession, paused, interrupted, the mad dash from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday to remind ourselves that we must not forget 
that between the shouts of Hosanna and the shouts of He is risen, there was a cross. There was a numbering, an accounting, a reckoning. We love to sing and celebrate the glory of the risen Christ. And rightly so. But today I'm wondering if Good Friday isn't the day when we should be most proud of our God. You see, the first Good Friday took place in a context very much like our own. That is to say, a culture constantly in search of a scapegoat. And in the midst of that, Jesus hangs there unashamed in solidarity with sinners, proving once and for all that scapegoating is not God's way. And because of that, I want to stand at the foot of the cross and shout, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look here, look here, this is my God. And what a glorious God He is. This is the God who causes my heart to swell in adoration. This is a God of whom I can be proud. Oh, I know, I know, I know. What I'm saying today is not nearly as exciting of a message as many would like. Don't you know our dear sister Janice captured the spirit of our age so well when she sang, Oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me and buy the next round. Oh Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? That's not our song today. Our song can be found in the words of the prophet who asked, Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Good Friday makes visible the truth that on the cross God suffered with us. We're used to saying Jesus suffered for us, and that is true, but it's not the full story. You see, Jesus didn't just suffer for us, but He suffers with us. The cross, my friends, is the completion of the incarnation. It is on the cross that we see God fully indwelling the human condition. Prophet Isaiah goes on, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. It is this suffering servant that I have come to truly love and worship. 
when I say that I adore the one who hangs on the cross. I don't mean this in a Mel Gibson torture porn sort of way, but in recognition that Jesus was willing to stand with me, even though it meant suffering and death for him. Notice Isaiah said he was numbered with. That is to say he was counted among the transgressors. Jesus was willing to bear not just the physical pain of the cross, but he was willing to bear the scandal of the cross. So hanging on the cross, alienated and alone, Jesus can truly say, it is finished. The incarnation of God is complete. The Word has become flesh absolutely through and through. No more doubt, no more ambiguity. God really is with us. Tragically, so many people, Christians included, seem to get this all backwards. Hear me when I say Jesus on the cross was not saving us from God. And the good in Good Friday is not the suffering itself, the violence, or even the death. It is the solidarity that can only come from a fully incarnate God in Jesus. Not just His life, not just His birth, but in His death, He is God dwelling with us. Now here's where things are going to get a little rough. This willingness that we see on the part of Jesus to be counted among the transgressors is not just something He does for us, but the Scriptures make it clear. Jesus Himself makes it clear that this is also the path to which we are called. We cannot preach redemption without first being willing to be numbered with, willing to accept the scandal of being counted among the transgressors. As disciples of the crucified God, we are called not to judge, not to condemn, but to stand with, to cry with, to suffer with, to pray with, and yes, to die with. Jesus Himself said, if anyone would be My disciple, let them take up their cross and follow Me. Good Friday helps us to see that taking up our cross is more than just saying sorry for our own individual and personal sins. To follow Him requires that we take our place standing in solidarity with the suffering and broken of our world. In our Western world, we have taken what is perhaps the greatest sign of universal solidarity and turned it into personal, individualistic piety. Good Friday should remind us that the cross is always about more than an individual. The cross of Jesus is not just my 
personal get-out-of-hell-free card? So let me say again, we ought not speak of resurrection. No, let me, let me go even further than that. We have no right to speak of resurrection while we stand apart from and refuse to be numbered among the transgressors. So this leads us to the next question. With whom am I supposed to be counted? Who is this that I'm supposed to stand solidarity with and suffer with and cry with and hurt with? Let me be clear. This cannot be an abstract solidarity. No, today we need to open our hearts so that the Holy Spirit can challenge us to look around and find ways to bear witness to the reality of Good Friday in our own context, in our own communities, in our own lives. You see, if we want to truly reflect the glory of the only begotten Son of God, then we must stand with the weak, the rejected, the despised, If we would walk in grace and truth today, then let us take up our cross and follow the incarnate God who suffers with His creation. I don't presume to know who exactly it is that you're called to stand in solidarity with today. But I do have Simple exercise that might help some of us along in this process of discernment. Here's a list of folks. It's not exhaustive, merely a list that came to mind when I began to think about suffering and scandal in our world. Black lives, refugees, addicts, the aged, the unborn, gay, lesbian, transgendered folk, the undocumented, those condemned to death, Muslims, the sick, the infirm. Now ask yourself this. Who in this list made you the most uncomfortable? Who in this list were you most quick to dismiss? Who in this list to see as other? Close with the words of an old song that said it so very well. Must Jesus spare cross alone and all the world go free? No, there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. Amen. Thank you for listening. Our podcasts are made possible by generous donations from listeners like you. To hear more, visit us online at orogracepoint.com.